Good morning, everyone. It's good to be gathered here with you this morning. Uh, just a little unsettled here, uh, major fire in our neighborhood. That's why uh, some of our folks are slow coming in, perhaps. Back of Lynn's shop was on fire at 9.20. So that was uh, a little unsettling of much more a much smaller uh, issue was my printer that quit working about the time I clicked print. But we got that going too, and um, so that, those things contributed to my sermon this morning, and as I was on the way to church, I like to read church signs, and up here at Windfall, most of you probably have noticed the, the uh, church there by the road says, bloom where you're planted. So we're going to tie all that together this morning. Um, a couple weeks ago, we looked at, shared a sermon called The View from the Cross that uh, spent some time looking at the thief on the cross as an example of God's saving grace that resulted in his salvation, though he didn't have a lot of opportunity to live that out, to change his life, it would appear, at least. So the sermon this morning, I've titled it, A Few Words About Works. And that was where I was going with last, the other Sunday's uh, sermon, thinking about grace and works, and grace being God's unmerited favor, and what you know, God and Jesus from the foundation of the world had this whole plan of salvation uh, chosen and implemented even before they created a humanity to, to work it on, but they knew, they knew it would all be necessary. <clears throat> so grace is God's plan of redemption. It's, it's embodied in Jesus and what he did for us. And the sermon today, which needs to be balanced and contexted and, and um, explained probably, is to remind us that God has a reason for salvation, that grace needs to be worked out and expressed in the way we live. So I want to encourage us in that. Um, the other Sunday we said that a common thread connecting the newest, most immature babe in Christ who had just bowed his heart to Jesus and the most mature, gray-haired, lifelong, pious saint is a sense of unworthiness and indebtedness to Jesus. That's a long sentence, but I, I felt like it tells us that a new Christian is secure in Christ. He, is, he can sleep well at night. His sins are forgiven. There's work to do. There's plenty that needs attention in his life, but he can be secure in God's grace. And that old saint who looks back across a life and some good choices can probably also see plenty of faulty choices and see plenty of place, places where God's grace was very necessary in his life and even in making those choices. So the human, we as humans have a pretty small role to play, but there is that element of choice that God tasked us with. 
what sometimes gets overlooked is the fact that God gives his grace to start our journey in the kingdom of God and also the grace to walk in. There's no question that salvation is all God's idea and even the choosing to believe it originates with God. He, 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 he makes us want to. <clears throat> in Spanish it says, the querer y el hacer the will and the doing, the, the want to and the doing to follow God's way. But you don't have to listen to too many evangelical preachers or teachers or even singers till you catch the message that it's God's unmerited favor that saves us nothing else like the criminal on the cross. And... Some go so far as to teach it's actually a problem if you try to live a life of holiness and obedience. Because if God has already forgiven my sins, past, present, and future, it's just not that important to obey since it's a done deal already. Uh, I'm really presumptuous to think I can improve on that. There's a big word for that called antinomianism. Uh, we won't get into that, and it's usually used to accuse other people of being that. So nobody really identifies themselves as that. But I feel that's a problem if we see God's grace as just something that has saved us. It's our ticket to heaven. And what we do while we wait for a ride is not important. <clears throat> and I'm afraid that that translates into lifestyles and practices that are not, should not be part of the kingdom of God. So I believe that Jesus is very interested in how I live today and that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and second coming should all motivate and empower us in obedient living. Number two, Jesus wants his kingdom filled with obedient people living out his life. He wants us to have an effect on the world around us. So our life and our works, that's the word we'll be using this morning, should show his saving and his walking power. In other words, our work should demonstrate our faith, and our work should be motivated by gratitude toward Jesus for what he has done. So what are works? <clears throat> I could get some answers here, I'm sure. How many works have you done this morning? Have you been working? Have you been doing good works this morning? Have you been making good choices? What about this week? You know, did you do your good deed for the day on Friday? We joke about things like that. But really, the way we live our lives is just a whole combination of the works that we do. It's our actions. It's our deeds. It's our choices. It's our, there are our thoughts. It's our attitudes. There's a whole lot involved in what our works are. Obviously, what I see of your works are the visible, the external, the way you drive, the way you comb your hair, the way you whatever, you know, the way you respond to me, the way I think about you. Uh, many, many different things are external actions and works. But God is seeing on the inside, too, and he's very interested in what's going on in here. So pretty much every choice we make, every deed we do, even who we are, like who we become, our character, 
Uh, I think we can fit those under the works category. That might be a little broad, and I'm sure somebody could uh, address that later if you want to differ a bit there. But how we react, how we talk, how we maintain ourselves, how we choose to be, those are works. And you won't be a Christian very long before you realize that it's God's grace that helps us to live well. If we want to have good works and live well for Jesus, we'll need his grace. So they go hand in glove. And like C.S. Lewis said, it's faith and works or grace and works. is kind of like both edges or both parts of the scissors. You need them both in this area of life. Humans are doers. Okay, It's how we roll. Uh, from the creation, God had man doing the keeping of the garden. He was farming early on there, hydroponically, by the way. The mist went up every morning. Uh, they obviously had better results than we do now with the thorns and thistles and Johnson grass and other weeds we have going on and dry weather. <clears throat> but we're doers, and God made us to be doers, and it's part of living under the king. We're his subjects, and we should act to implement his will. And the first pair did that. Uh, now, some would say that a human's desire to do is actually the flesh, uh, wanting to earn favor with God. Well, I'm not so sure. I think doing is natural for us. We serve. We act. We are, we are doers. And I think it's natural for us to want to please and obey our Lord. Jesus, in Matthew 6.10, taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done, and in earth as it is in heaven. That's personal. That's me wanting as a servant of his and praying this prayer that I want to implement God's will here on earth. So that would be a good work, right, to implement God's will here on earth. What were Saul's first words to Jesus when he met him on the Damascus Road? He said, Lord, what will you have me to do? He had a new master. Jesus was his master, and he wanted to do something for him. <clears throat> I want to look back at the thief on the cross again. Some of you weren't here the day I talked about him. According to Catholic and Orthodox tradition, his name was Dismas. And they even have a Saint Dismas. There's um, a day dedicated to him. He's, he's the saint of the condemned to die and those that have made last-minute changes in their lives Somewhere I read he was also the patron saint of undertakers. I'm not sure how that all fits together. But we don't know a lot about Dismas, but we have that scene from his, his last day on earth, his last Friday. And uh, I built a little story about him in the other sermon the other week, and um, it's interesting always to, to guess at how things might have been and how his life might have developed into this horrible criminal that he must have been because the Romans used crucifixion only the, on the worst criminals. They wanted to make a public spectacle. They chose the most visible place and the most uh, horrible means of taking a life that lasted the longest and would, would 
teach the rest of the population to stay far away from the crimes that this man would have committed. So we don't know a lot about Decimus. We'll call him that because not that we're sure, but he was a very real man, and he had a real name. That could have been it. And a life of crime had caught up with him, and he was going to die. The stories in Luke 23, I'll read uh, from 39 to 43, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. This was justice, we're told in tradition. He was the other thief. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turned to Jesus, Dismas did, and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So here on a Friday afternoon, we have Jesus, the just one, choosing to die for lost humanity, for all of us, not just for Dismas. He's the essence of grace voluntarily accomplishing salvation and several feet away, off to his side, right side perhaps, was Dismas dying for his crimes, dying justly for the crimes he'd committed. What choices would this saved man have to make on his last afternoon on earth, hanging on a cross? Very limited it would seem like grace was the only thing that was going on in his life, and we wonder what choices Dismas had to make. Well, as we look at him, think about him, there's several thoughts I had. One was his confession that Jesus was king. And I see him as submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ here. If Jesus is his king, he said, receive me into your kingdom when you come there. If Jesus was his king, he was placing himself under that authority. He didn't have a lot of opportunity to act on that, to express that. But Jesus acknowledged Dismas' faith, and he promised paradise for him today, on that very day. Mercy and grace had met a mustard seed of faith here, and a saint was born. And in the middle of his darkest day, in Dismas's darkest hour, as the devil waited expectantly to snatch another soul to a lost eternity, a light flickered and a flame of hope began to burn. And soon Jesus' triumphant cry was, It, has, it is finished. And grace had expressed itself fully. <clears throat> But what about Dismas? Jesus died. When the soldiers came to expedite the deaths of the men on the cross, they did that with a heavy wooden club, and they would break their legs so the, the crucified people couldn't raise themselves to, to catch a breath of air. Uh, they just hanging off of their arms made it almost impossible to breathe. And so they would take turns where the pain was, you know, in your arms, in your chest, in your foot. 
and when your legs were broken, that was it. You would just not be able to, to push yourself up to breathe. So Dismas, after Christ died, we know Christ died apparently around 3 in the afternoon. The, the, the sky was dark, earthquake, many things going on there. But he was still alive when Jesus died. And he probably had several hours to go. We know that the soldiers, the Jews didn't want people hanging on the cross past sundown on that day of preparation. So they asked the Romans to break those legs to expedite their deaths. So Dismas had hours to hang there likely after Jesus, after his Savior died until those soldiers came and gave the final crushing blow to a cruel and savage day. There was little Dismas could do to demonstrate his gratitude for salvation, but let's not underestimate the act of being. Think about that a little. The act of being. What was Dismas now? He was a saint, and... He was faithful. We're, we're surmising a bit, but he was faithful in holding on to faith through three more hours of intense pain. He was faithful in quietly bearing the jeers of the crowd and the other thief, patiently waiting for his king's promise. Holding on is hard work. holding on in hard times, in times of pain, in times of trouble, is work. But it's a good work if we're hanging on with the grace of Jesus and in his strength. And we know that paradise was coming for Dismas. So I want to shift gears a little now and think about some motivations for good works. It helps to have motivation to do things. We, we bait our children sometimes with, with good things. Um, there's, there's different things we do. We encourage animals uh, by feeding them to come through the gate. We, uh, there's different ways we encourage positive behavior. We reinforce good behavior with, uh, with things that motivate us. Well, on a more important scale here, here's some motivations that we have from Scripture for doing good works. <clears throat> I see motivation for good works in Jesus' life, in his example of living for people. You know, Jesus was, had given his life in service to humanity long before the cross. Um, we don't know about his growing up years. It's hard to imagine him being less than a, an obedient child and a helpful child. But certainly those last three years that he spent in ministry, he embodied good works and pious living and helpful living and caring living. All of those things were Jesus modeled them. Uh, his life on earth was full of God-honoring work. In Hebrews 10:7, it says, and it's quoting from the Old Testament, Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O Lord, O God. Jesus came to do God's will. That was a good work. 
That was something he did. And in John 13, he talks to his disciples and said, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example so that you should do as I have done for you. What a good work to model that servitude to his disciples. And we know, we flesh that out every time we have communion and foot washing, that that is actually a symbol of us serving each other and others. Jesus set an example of good work in serving his disciples. We should do the same for each other. Second motivation I have is, of course, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It's a motivation for us just like it was for Dismas. I think as he saw him patiently dying there, as Dismas saw Jesus dying, it was significant. He saw his old friend, fellow robber, Justus, doing just the opposite. He was railing, he was cursing, he was unhappy, he knew where he was dying. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us is a tremendous motivation for us. And that's why he, Jesus instituted communion. It's to remember, it's not a morbid time we reflect on this this terrible act it's more that we look at it as jesus performing this act of servitude and love for us and then we in turn after we practice that and think about that we're more motivated to serve him and each other as participants in communion we should be inspired to obedience <clears throat> I'd like to read some verses in Hebrews 12. I've picked a number of verses out there. You can turn to that if you want to. Notice all the action words here. We see Jesus, for one, and then we have all of these um, commands, much more than suggestions, recommendations for us to practice on each other. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endures such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Wherefore, because of Jesus' example and what he's done for us, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And then down to verse 28. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. There's that word again. 
whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It's because of grace that we can serve God acceptably. And that's, we must remember, that's the order. It's not the works that save us. It's the, the grace that saves us and the works that follow so we can serve God acceptably. The third motivation is Jesus is coming again. There's a few verse, verses called my eye in Philippians 3 and just over into chapter 4 recently. You know the, the chapter divisions aren't necessarily inspired. There's there often a sequence of thought that follows from one chapter over into the next. And this seems to be the case here in Philippians 3. So I have the verses here the way I want them to fit together. Uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, and then also verse 1. Listen to this sequence. Join one another in following my example, brothers, and carefully observe those who walk according to the pattern we set for you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. We're not emphasizing this group of people except to say their minds are set on earthly things. Now, and hopefully this is the group, the camp that we're in, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Therefore... Because of this, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you must stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So that hope of heaven, that hope of Jesus coming again to change our mortal bodies, our mortal working bodies into a heavenly working body, there's a while here that we need to maintain this hope of heaven and this coming Lord Jesus, and that will motivate us to stand firm in the Lord. And I think having that heavenly perspective is a, is a real plus in the times we live in. <clears throat> and by the way, standing is a good work. That is how you must stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Standing is a good work. Seems kind of inactive, but standing. And um, remember the verse there, having done all to stand with the armor of the Lord, standing is a good work. Now I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. <clears throat> You're probably wondering about my prop here. Smells nice. Anyway, it wasn't my seat cushion. <clears throat> but why are works work? Why are works work? That's a kind of a strange question maybe, but why don't they just flow automatically from a newborn Christian? Why do we have to work at them? Aren't they supposed to be fruits? And they would, if you've got your attachment to the vine, shouldn't these fruits just be popping out everywhere? Well, there's truth there, too, and you have to be careful with analogies. Um, certainly you will not produce fruit, not godly fruit, if you're not attached to the vine. We want, unless we're motivated, if we're saved by grace through faith, 
we will not produce godly fruit. All that is true. But I wondered about this when I was younger, quite a bit younger. I had good parents and grandparents and probably even great-grandparents. I had good influences around me, and I remember puzzling over the fact that though I knew my parents, grandparents, neighbors, and even my siblings thought I should behave well, it was work. It just felt easier to be naughty, and I practiced that song. It took, I remember thinking, you know, it takes work. It takes effort and purpose to do well, to follow the rules, to pick up your clothes, to make your bed, to behave in school, to, you know, you you kids know these things. It takes a little bit of effort, doesn't it? Maybe more than a little. And the reason for that is, All of us, the best of us among us is born with a sin nature. Of course, we're lost without Jesus, so we need Jesus to start with. But the fact is, even when we have Jesus in our hearts, we constantly have to make choices. And with Jesus in our hearts, we still have the flesh. And that's something that we're kind of stuck with, that part of us that would like to do things our way and would like to choose what feels best to us or would like not to be nice and would rather be naughty. That's the flesh inside of you, and it even exists in Christians, believe it or not. Now, we hope it's getting to be less and less of an influence. And that's why I brought this. Now this is not this is nothing real special except a fairly decent cake of orchard grass hay, and I know some of you appreciate it more than I do, or more than some of you others. It's well made. It's cured well. It smells nice. Got some good TDM there. Some good protein going on. Uh, would be a decent hay for young dairy heifers at least. Maybe not. Maybe a little mature for horses. Yeah, but uh, it's still good hay. How does that fit with our lesson? Well, a wise man told me one time that a Christian struggle to do right is sort of like us having two horses inside of us. Okay, this is a stretch, I know. Okay, so the horses are tied to us, and they're a white horse is pulling us to do well and do right and do good and do the things we should, but there's a black horse that's pulling the other way and wants us to live for ourselves, forget other people, to not do what God wants us to or our parents want us to. So we're, we're pulled both ways. Even in a Christian, you felt that pull, I think, and this is very practical and, and needs qualification, I'm sure. But Who will win in this fight, in this tug of war of the two horses, the black one towards the bad and the white one towards the good? Well, answer me. Who would win? Which horse will win in that pool, in that tug of war? Any ideas? What makes a difference in that tug of war? The feeding of the horse. And you know what? That's my job. 
I'm the one that feeds the horse. And do you know horses that don't get fed aren't very strong. They don't like carrying people around if they're not fed well. And for a Christian that makes choices, good choices, he's feeding the white horse, you might say. There's a song that says, Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you another to win. Remember that song? That's kind of how I think about it. And I'm sure you'll really need to go home and talk to your parents about this and understand how this all works. But it is true. As we make good choices to do good works, the next one will be a little easier. It will form a pattern and a habit in your life of living well. Okay, I'm just about to wrap this up here, but and I know this analogy breaks down, but the truth is that living a good, godly Christian life takes effort. It will take work. Let's remember for sure that it's the grace that saves us. It's God's, it's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that, that gave us that grace, that helps us, leads us to salvation, but we will need to invest So is exerting effort scriptural even? Doesn't fruit just grow? I asked that question a little bit ago. There's a lot of verses, if you want to look them up, that will talk about the effort we need to invest in growing and in producing fruit and doing good works. Colossians 3 has a whole chapter about things to put off and put on if you want some homework to do. Uh, Some sweat is required. Some practicing is required. Philippians 2, verse 12 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He wasn't working for salvation. He was saying, work it out. You've got it in you. You've got grace going on in your life. Work it out. Express it. The Spirit within us will help us to work out our salvation. many more verses the Sermon on the Mount has many effort words in it like seek, ask, knock things to do we are to exert effort and express God's enabling grace here's a quote from Dallas Willard he said grace is not opposed to effort it is opposed to earning Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Earning, the attitude of earning is that as I'm doing this, these good things, as I'm helping my neighbor or whatever, that I'm getting a little closer to heaven, that I'm earning the salvation, that, or God will see that I really deserve salvation. So it's an attitude. That's not what we want. But effort is action. It is doing something but we already know the grace has been applied. And he finished that quote by saying, Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. Grace has a whole lot to do with what you're going to do next week. It will have a lot to do with how we have served and brought food here for our fellowship meal today. It's how we live with each other and how we love each other. So don't underestimate your work. In other words, don't underestimate everything you have to do next week. 
including teaching school or being a student or a church member or a community member. Let's not under, underestimate our work. It is not in vain. It's the task that Jesus has for us. And there is work for all of us. So, Jesus, give us grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pause to thank you just now for your grace, for the sacrifice that Jesus died on the cross to save us, to show humanity his love, and to restore that relationship that has been broken for so long. Thank you, Lord, that that same grace is available to us today to live for you, live in your power and your strength, to love each other, and to serve you well. I pray you would help us to do that, starting from here. In Jesus' name, amen.